Welcome to Horror and More with Anya Gore. I am your horror mistress, Anya. And today I have a very special guest who I am very excited to have on here. I've got Jacqueline from A Cut Above Horror Review. Hi, Jacqueline. Hey, thanks for having me on, Anya. I'm so, so, so excited to do this episode with you. Me too. And the moment I found out that what we're going to talk about was also your favorite horror movie, I was like, the, the stars have aligned. We're both horror fanatics and we both review. How has this not happened sooner? <laughs> I know. I it, the, the second I found out about that as well, I felt like an immediate sense of kindred spiritdom with you. Like, oh, like if, I felt like a stronger connection with you instantly. <laughs> oh, totally. There's not many people who actually I've never met anyone else that has said that this is their favorite movie. Mm -hmm. I've met one other person, a former colleague of mine, but in, in all my 40 years of life, just, just the one. So I know it's wild. It's such a great, great film, but we'll, we'll deep dive into that. Um, before we get into anything, talk about your podcast, tell people about it. Oh, sure. So I am one of three co-hosts on a cut above horror review. Uh, we just do a weekly review show. We rotate, uh, who gets to choose the movie each week. So it's uh, my good friends, John and Hyderberg and myself, and we just take turns. There's not much rhyme or reason to, you know, the the pattern or what gets chosen when. It's just kind of what we're feeling like at a particular time. And we do some special segments like deciding whether the movie fucks or sucks. And Hyderberg gives a poetic plot summary called the reach around plot summary each week which uh quickly became the highlight of the show and is always everybody's favorites <laughs> people live for that reach around <laughs> it's but, so good and it just he's getting stronger with it every episode it's true it's true i mean they're they are just gold and so mm -hmm. uh, we've been talking about this for um, we've, we just hit our hundredth episode. So it's been about two years that, since we started doing this show, but we've been talking since the beginning, like, oh, we should make a coffee table book of all these reach arounds. And I still think someday it's going to happen. Actually. That I would purchase that in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. People support people give us great feedback on that all the time and how much they love it. So he yeah, should be, he, he should be trying to sell those to some of the rappers out there and be like, this would make such a good rap song. Yeah, people have told him that before, like, oh, you yeah. should write, you know, actual poetry, you should write song lyrics, you should write raps. So I, you know, he's he's got a talent for sure. Absolutely. What <laughs> I what I like about the three of you, your dynamics are so different. And I can really proudly say you bring such a strong vibe for women on that podcast. You aren't a woman who when you're listening to it kind of like, Oh, yeah, she doesn't really know what she's talking about or she's sitting around letting the boys talk over her. No, no, you are like you represent us well. And oh, thank thank you. That That is so flattering. I, I don't even know what to do with that. That's really an honor for me coming from you because I respect you and what you do so much. So that really means a lot to me. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. And for those listening, um. The John she's talking about is John, who's been on my this episode a few times, and I initially met him on his other podcast called Horrorphoria. So it's a nice connection there with the two of you. 
Yeah, you guys have had some really great episodes together. I loved your review of Lamb together. Oh. I was like shouting back at my car radio to that one picking up the kids because I wanted to be on that conversation so much um and of course you and I are Rob Zombie allies mm-hmm. we we tend to be the defenders against the haters so oh that's because we have taste I know well that's that's another thing I think you know sometimes being women in horror I think men tend to expect us to be like shrinking violets or be like overly offended by things that are unseemly or whatever but then here you and i are defending rob zombies like trashy <laughs> protein, vulgar stuff and the boys are like clutching their pearls at it and we're like no it rocks yeah yeah i mean i i think we both agree you know is rob zombie the best film director in the world no of course not but for <laughs> what he does that is thoroughly entertaining and it is thoroughly enjoyable and it's kitschy and it's what you want when you're watching his kind of film exactly exactly well keep your ears open because there may be some rob zombie coverage very very soon on a cut above so look Ooh, out for that. we're gonna have to check that out everybody you want to go back and listen to how rob zombie is referenced in every episode i love how every episode you always bring them up and i'm sitting there going yes it really did start organically when we first started the podcast. I just noticed this pattern that somehow we kept like accidentally bringing him up in conversation. And then I think I was the one who pointed it out one day, like so we, we're talking about Rob Zombie in every single episode. And then it became like a game, like, oh, who can wedge him into the conversation first? And then the, the two who don't get it in first were like, ah, damn it. <laughs> we should have an episode of the four of us having the battle of the sexes of Rob Zombie. Yes. Us versus them. I am down anytime, sister. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so they just hit their 100th episode. Congrats. That's a lot. And that's awesome because, you know, as a working mother, <laughs> to find the time, you were giving up sleep, you were giving up time with your kids. And that is a commitment to your craft. And I really respect you for that because there are some days where I'm just like, I can't, I'm just not going to podcast today. Not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, same respect right back to you. Cause yeah, you're right. It is hard. And I've said to the the boys more than once to John and Hyderberg, like, I don't, I don't even really have time to do this podcast. Like, but I, somehow I just, I make it happen because it's so important to all three of us for a variety of reasons, but I, I care enough about it that I just, I got to make it happen. So. And it's good. It's such a good fit for you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. You give me something to look forward to every time I'm driving because I drive a fair amount to get out to do my shoots. So I'm in the car for at least an hour and I'm like, this is perfect. I listen to most of it going out, finish it when I'm coming home. It's perfect. Thank you. You are truly a diehard fan and we love you so much. You're so, oh. and you're so I love you. All of all three of you, all three of you <laughs> for very different reasons. <laughs> Do you need a moment? Oh, darn's blanket. <laughs> there it is. I will drink from my giant water bottle here. Right. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I still had some of the kids' nap things. Is that editable? Do you do you edit? Of course. Or? Yep. Okay. <laughs> yep. Don't worry. And sometimes when it's cute stuff like that, I mean, like if the kid were to walk in and say something, I'd probably leave it in because it's so cute. <laughs> 
silence on my part. <laughs> okay, Sorry. so the reason Jacqueline is here today um, is aside from Rosemary's Baby being both of our favorite horror movie for probably forever, um, we have both agreed to kind of deep dive a little bit into this. And so we're going to do a review. So I'm going to give you your spoiler warning now. If you have not seen Rosemary's Baby, I well, first of all, I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I, I if you're listening to this podcast, my my horror podcast, <laughs> you haven't watched Rosemary's Baby, maybe I don't know. I don't I don't know what to tell you. You're you're living under a rock. Um, but you know, turn it off, go watch it, come back, and then listen to what we have to say about it. And um and then we're going to talk about a film we watched after Rosemary's Baby that I did not even know existed until about a month ago. So I also want to preface this episode by giving you a trigger warning. Part of our discussion today is going to center around Roman Polanski. The conversation that Jacqueline and I started about this episode was we are also going to decide if Roman Polanski has been canceled, I'm going to summarize for you his offenses. And I am going to put into quotation marks alleged offenses because he was only recently caught. Um, and there's a whole secondary story, which I'm not going to get into about his recent capture. Um, but I, for all intents and purposes, I'm supposed to use the term alleged. And, um, and it's, some of it's going to be not awesome to hear. So we will save that for the end. If you want to find out if we think this movie deserves to stay in our top 10, or if Roman Polanski has been canceled and it's kicked the movie elsewhere for us, then you'll have to bear with us as we get there. Yeah. Sounds good. So I'm going to ask you, Rosemary's Baby is your favorite horror movie of all time. Yes. I'm, I'm assuming there's no quick answer about why. But what's oh. the first thought that comes into your mind? Why is this movie your favorite of all time? Oh, man. I think because it's so effective at creating this feeling of, everybody is against you. Um, and I think the success and the effectiveness of that story is due to a lot of factors um, within the film. But I think the most credit has to go to Mia Farrow's acting. I think she is one of the best protagonists of any horror movie, if not the best. Um, I mean, I feel like I could go on and on about her performance for like years, but um yeah so there, there's just there's so many things that go into my love for this movie um i love anything having to do with witches whether witches are you know like the protagonists of the story you know like you're following the witches or whether they're the source of evil in the story or whatever i love anything witchy and i always have anything culty mm -hmm. but but particularly um and i i think there's such a strong sense of dawning horror in this movie. 
what I think is really remarkable about it is that the beginning scenes of the movie really play almost like uh, like a domestic comedy, almost. <laughs> it's like young newlyweds and they have, they're young and in love and they're, he's trying to build his career. They're just starting out. They're shopping for a new place. They can't really afford it. But, oh, what the hell? Let's do it anyway. And they have these little romantic moments um, and it just all goes to such shit. Like it falls so far from so high to so low and I mean it's really like almost Shakespearean and it's tragedy so um I'm so I could you, you said is there a quick answer I said no, so I, just, <laughs> I knew there wouldn't be <laughs> for a few minutes but so right off the bat Mia Farrow's performance the witches the Shakespearean fall from grace and most of all that the horror of everyone being against you but you don't realize it until it's too late so that's the shortest answer i can give what about you i had to write a list <laughs> i'm not joking number one number two number <laughs> the reason i wrote a list is because i rewatched it again right after the first one and i was like i need to write a list here of why i love this one because the other one but mm -hmm. uh my number one, the top thing, again, performances. Like, mm -hmm. I just, her, everything about her reactions and everything feels so legitimate. You feel her fear. You feel her sadness. You feel when she's happy and giddy and relief and pain. Um, the story is great. I'm with you. Anything occult or witches is my top. It's my favorite. Mm -hmm. Um. The writing in the film, not just the story writing, but the dialogue and the the scenes, the way they were written, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. The music, love, love, love the music. And, um, and also the cityscape. And because it happened so long ago, I love watching, I guess, the city at that time. It, it's just, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful movie. It is. But I'm curious, what did you pick up on any themes in this about Rosemary? Oh, just in general? Well, yeah. uh, I mean that's a that's a heavy question. <laughs> I mean, I think there are themes with her character to be explored. Uh, on the topics of religion and questioning one's religion, um, the place of women in society, uh, the role of women in the late 60s, the role of Catholic women in the 60s, um, her role as the wife of an actor. I mean, there's there's so much to unpack. There's tons of themes that you could spend. I mean, you could write books about it, I think. Um, it's true. One one of the themes that was very, very obvious to me upon this last watching, and, you know, I didn't really pick up on it before to a degree I did, but um, was, I was struggling to believe how naive she was acting because her character was insanely naive. Like mm -hmm. She's being surrounded constantly by things that she's just not in tune to. And I, I couldn't, I was really having a hard time deciphering whether it, that's a representation of, like you said, women and who they were in society at that time and when it was written. 
Or was it this other layer of her just being so innocent and choosing to be naive? Was she raised in a naive environment where that's sort of one of the reasons why she got preyed on, not specifically just for being a woman who was going to get pregnant, but they preyed on her because of how naive she was. And I have notes and notes and notes about moments where I, it, the, the, how, how much she ignored or just be was oblivious to was kind of shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Like, what are your thoughts? Really interesting question. And one that I hadn't specifically considered before her naivete and what, like whether that's willful or just uh, like a symptom of her, like her role within society at that time or, or what. Um, I think there are some clues given to us about her character that suggest, I mean, I feel like naive, ha- the word naive has such a kind of a negative connotation. Um, and I don't want to like malign her as a character, but I do think there is a a trustfulness about her. Um, she she truly seems to adore Guy. I mean, she absolutely adores him. You see in the early scenes when she's getting the apartment fixed up and he's at work and um, she hears his motorcycle commercial come on TV and she gets so excited like a little girl. And she jumps down off the chair where she's hanging wallpaper or whatever. And she runs over to the TV and turns up the volume and sits on her knees like a, like a child mm-hmm. in front of the TV. Um, and so, the, you know, I, I say all the time on A Cut Above that I feel like moments where you see characters alone are where you get sort of the most authentic insight into their true characters, um, where they're not trying to perform for any but for any other characters or they're not trying to they don't have an agenda to get their way on anything but when you see characters alone and you spend time alone with them you see a lot um, of insight into their character and I think that's one of those moments for her we also know that she's from the midwest I believe she's from Omaha mm-hmm. raised a catholic and she really she really does seem to be a very earnest character with no guile or desire to manipulate or deceive at at any point in in the film and so I I see her willingness to or her her lack of awareness of some of these signs and moments that for us seem so like like such strong red flags like just screaming at her um I I don't See that I've never I've never interpreted that as like a willful ignoring or you know repression of the of awareness. I've seen that as like a true innocence and trusting and like um, full like full trust in her husband. Like I think it could not occur to her in any universe that her husband could be deceiving her so profoundly. And even when she discovers the truth about Castavets, it still takes her a while before she realizes that guy is now on it too. There, which to me is a very painful interim period of the movie where she's figured out the truth about the neighbors, but she still is, she's like telling her, her findings to guy. And that's so hard to watch. So th- th- those are my immediate thoughts upon considering that question. What, have you come to any conclusion on that? Do you think? 
Well, no, <laughs> not, not a hundred percent. I mean, I think it's interesting that they really gloss over her religious history. The only little elements that you get to see is of that dream that she's having where she admits she lied about something and mm. she's very guilt ridden about that. And then I, I made a note of this as well, but you don't even find out where's her family. You have no idea. They don't come into her life in the present time at all. So we don't really know very much. And I can't tell if that is to that being a detriment to her being appearing naive or if it benefits that we don't know. And so it makes us in turn question, you know, why is she so trusting? Why does she continually allow all of these people surrounding her to just overtake everything? Hmm. And, you know, and then and then you can kind of take it from there that she's obviously not religious now, but has come from a religious background. And there must be a reason that her family is not around and not coming to her when she's pregnant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I have wondered about that through the years. And I wish we had a, a better answer about that. But it's interesting that you bring up her former Catholicism and the guilt of you know, that we see in the dream of her having some minor transgression. She's asking forgiveness from the nuns. Um, in her waking life, you know, that that makes me think about some of the moments that she shows in her waking life where she's very accommodating to others and very willing to give others the benefit of the doubt and almost apologetic for her own behavior at times. Um, like, you know, Minnie will be doing something intrusive, but she will never break her absolute commitment to politeness. You know, she's never root. She never says, you know, I really want to be left alone. Like even when it imposes on her, she is polite to a fault and accommodating to others. Uh, one might use the word submissive. Um, mm. Definitely to Guy. <clears throat> Much of the time she's very um, submissive to Guy. And so I think maybe there's a crossroads between the guilt that's the like sort of constant guilt that's imposed upon you within the kind of um, paradigm of Catholicism combined with the sort of subservient role of women at this time. Now, of course, in the late sixties, you did have women's lib um, kind of in full swing, but Rosemary's character seems to be not really participating in that. Um well, I think you see little glimmers of it, you know, when she, as an example, comes back with that haircut. Right. And she's like, I went to Vidal Sassoon. I mean, you know, knowing that that was actually written in, do you know about the Vidal Sassoon thing? So you know about oh, yeah. it. Let me mm -hmm. see if I can find that fun little fact in case people are listening and don't know. <laughs> Hold on. I've got so many fun little facts here. Um, oh, my goodness. Oh, I don't think I have it here. Interesting. Okay. But anyways, yeah. So Mia Farrow just happened to have gotten her haircut during the filming of that at Vidal Sassoon, and they decided to write that into it. And I think that's really interesting because there are these odd moments where she really stands up for herself to Guy. And then she mm -hmm. comes home with this haircut and she is not phased at all that he really doesn't like it. She's not phased, but she is punished for it. 
like she's she's punished by his belittlement and ridicule of her, which I find so offensive. Um, yeah, yeah. I really hate him in that moment, as in so many others. But um, yeah, she is she is punished for it, and I. Yeah, there, so there are glimmers of that. Um, and also her friends, like her friends seem to be a little bit more like socially in tune with the times. And when they have that cocktail party and her friends are over, they seem to be more like the voice of reason um, for her. And, and it's like she seems tempted to want to listen to them. And she's trying to tell Guy afterwards, like, oh, you know, I forget their names now, but like Marie said, da da da. And I think I should do this. And I want to go back to Dr. Hill and for which again, she's punished. Mm-hmm. Oh, and of course that's within the realm of this story. He has a good reason for doing that because he's trying to cover up his evil deeds, but within the wider context, like you can see how men at that time would want to quash those moments of small defiance or independence on the part of their wives. Um, you know, women's lib, I think was very scary for a lot of men and probably still is, but, um, you know, so you're right that there are moments, but like, she doesn't, she doesn't get off scot-free with them. I think. No. Yeah. Nothing about her life gets off scot-free. She also, the, the part of it that I really wish that I knew a little bit more about was like you mentioned, she's like a little child when she hears him on TV and runs over and obediently sits there almost cross-legged and, you know, and there is such a uncomfortable youthfulness to her that as you're watching this, by all intents and purposes, she should be a 20-something-year-old grown woman, but mm-hmm. she she isn't really. Everything, it's, it's like she has to run to daddy first to get approval and... You know, if she's done something wrong, then she's had her hand caught in the cookie jar and her reactions are always like that. And that disconnect of not knowing why she's like that. Oh, I love that. There's a part of me that loves that they left that open because it gets me to go back and want to keep watching. I don't stop thinking about it. And that's another reason why I love this movie, because those questions will never be answered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's disturbing, I think. But once again, I, I still have always interpreted that as very much like of the times and a, a woman who has not fully immersed herself in the women's lib movement. Um, she does not have income of her own. You know, I think still at that time, the husband was like the head of the household and his, you know, his word was like final. And I'm not saying it was like that in every household and, or in every couple or every family, but I do think that was a prevalent dynamic um, where, I mean, just 15 years earlier, when you watch episodes of I Love Lucy, yeah, um, you know, Ricky's mad about something and Lucy's in trouble. She's like a child. He treats her like a child sometimes. Like she's in trouble. And he's like, do you understand me? And she's like, yes, sir. Like imagine a wife saying yes, sir, to her husband. Now I know that's a different decade, but it's not that much earlier. And I feel like there uh, were still strong vestiges of that, you know, continuing into the late sixties. And so I think that creates kind of a paternalistic dynamic within a marriage. If like the husband is in charge, then I think that partner in many ways becomes parental um within that relationship and then 
the person with less power, you know, almost 100% of the time, the wife, that person takes on a more childlike role, which again is disturbing. <laughs> but it is, but it add in there how she's dressing and, you know, it, it's just like, I, I wish that I could remember the details of the book if they focused so much on that youthfulness or if that plays into the direction of the film. I don't know. I, I can't remember if it's been a long time since I've read the book. I do remember that um, the, the book and the movie are extremely similar to each other. I don't think there are any like significant deviations from the source material, but I don't specifically remember whether her kind of childlike demeanor is portrayed that way. I do remember that physically she was not described as being so waifish. I think she was envisioned more as like kind of a, Mm, kind of healthier, kind of corn-fed, all-American mm-hmm. sort of gal. Um, but I actually really like the choice of Mia Farrow and her kind of like waifish figure to portray this role. I, I've always thought that worked really well. I think it contributes to our sense of fear for her. I agree with you a thousand percent. Yes. Mm. Yes. Now, you mentioned their relationship a lot. <laughs> I every time I watch this movie, I am it 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 reiterates to me how grateful I am for all of the women and what they went through with women's lip because I just sit here and I I think if I lived in my skin then how I feel now, I would not I would <laughs> not be in a good relationship. I would you know, kudos to these women for doing that and and i mean i think most of the time they had to Mm -hmm. but when you see see it so obvious it 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 is so obvious i mean i believe at that time women couldn't even like have a credit card in their own name they couldn't i mean there was just like financially women were so dependent on men and if they were unmarried i think they had to have like their father as a co-signer or something like that for you know, alone or, you know, to buy a car or whatever. Like, I don't think they could just go and buy, make a large purchase like that on their own or have a line of credit even. I mean, it's just insane. I mean, it was not that long ago. Wild. Can you leave? It's not even that long ago. No. (laughs) Wild to me. Mm -mm. (laughs) Yeah. But one, one thing that it sounds like we can both agree on is that guy is not a good man. And oh. I, <laughs> I mean, even taking away from his decision, <laughs> I felt like the romance wasn't there. You know, it, it, that first night where they're in their new place and she's like, let's make love now. He's like, okay. And she just, it felt very transactional and unsexy and not romantic. And like, what are your thoughts on guy oh i completely agree with you yeah even aside from his absolutely like astronomical evil like just (laughs) on an everyday basis before we even you know see any of that stuff he's he's distant he doesn't seem terribly invested in the relationship he doesn't seem terribly fond of her or affectionate towards her um i don't i don't really get it uh 
I was reading up on Ira Levin, the author of the novel, and his sort of preliminary character sketches of Rosemary um, before he actually wrote the novel. And he gave some interesting insights about how he envisioned Rosemary. And I don't think most of these things ended up in the book. Again, it's been a while, so don't quote me on that. I, you know, they might be, but um, just in his kind of the development of her background as a character, um, he was her first lover, but she was not his. And he's supposed to be, I think, significantly older than her, maybe 10 years or more. Um, really? And I, I believe so. Oh. Uh, I'd have to go back and double check that, but I believe that's correct. Uh, and just kind of like the the marriage happened just because it kind of felt like it was time to or she's paid her dues or they've been together and he might as well settle down, that kind of thing. I I, I never feel a deep, like burning sense of passionate love from him towards her. Um, conversely, I feel as though she's extremely affectionate towards him and fond of him and devoted to him. I feel extreme devotion towards him on her part, but not the other way around. I agree. I completely agree. And I also, I think it adds to the story as well. The fact that you don't know their history, any, you don't know a lick of anything before that, that day that they walk in and purchase this place. And the only little glimmer you have of that is finding out that before they moved there, they used to have dinner parties and they had this group of friends that seemingly dropped off the face of the earth until they decided to have this dinner party. And it's hard being in today's day watching this because then you go, well, was this commonplace back then? You know, like you would hear about women getting married and all of a sudden they didn't have anything anymore. They didn't have any friends and they would, you know, only become wives and that was their whole life. And so the, the the contrast about knowing that that was an actual thing and then that follows the storyline. But then again, all these little glimmers of her trying to be a woman, part of the woman's lib and then bringing back friends that they used to have parties with. So it's interesting, but very intentional that they didn't delve into any of that, just really glosses over everything. Yeah. And I think functionally that lack of the continued friendships and the lack of contact with her family in terms of like how, like what the narrative needs to function, I think that works to allow the infiltration of the neighbors. Like without those other strong relationships in place, for her as support um, or as connections to like the outside, like the, I say the outside world, like, but I mean, I do kind of think about these two apartments, these two adjacent apartments, almost as like a little dungeon, like a little kind of self-contained place of danger, but she doesn't have any outside contacts besides Hutch. And so that makes it so much easier for the neighbors to kind of ingratiate themselves and for her to, allow that relationship to happen even though she sometimes finds it annoying i think if she had stronger relationships with her friends and her family that would not have been able to happen so easily so i think that's kind of the purpose within the narrative but it does create a sense of mystery like 
narratively speaking, how does that happen? Why isn't she talking to her parents? And why isn't she maintaining that contact with her friends? Is there something in that dynamic or is it just a sign of the times? You know, you belong to Guy now and that's your primary primary relationship and that's it. So I don't know. I love that. To me, this is strong writing when, like you said, for the story, we didn't require any of that. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it isn't there and we have thought about it and we've gone back to watch it and we're discussing it, that is such a strong story because you want to dissect it. You want to try to see more glimmers and go back and did I miss this? And will I catch more next time? And I love that. That's love it. <laughs> well, that's kind of the beauty of this movie, right? Is that, like it has so much to give. Um there's it's so complex and there's so many knots to unravel and so many things that we can never know but that we can always question and our supposed answers at any moment might change you know from what they are today to 20 years from now or what they were 20 years ago i'm sure you have a long history with this movie like i do and i'm sure you've seen it countless times like i have um and i think i think some of those questions that you're asking are so fascinating and can have you know, different answers over the years. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm just, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't make this film now because you know that there would be a prequel and a prequel to the prequel and it would go off and it would be, the next story would be about, you know, the occult. And I like that this was kind of not one and done, but kind of one and done. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. And it didn't require that to feel the dread, to feel the discomfort and to feel emotion from this. You walked away from this movie feeling satisfied, even though there's a bazillion unanswered questions. Yeah. And it doesn't actually, it doesn't really happen actually in very many films to have that many holes, but it isn't incomplete. Yeah, I agree. I think that the, the structure of the story and um, the evolution of the characters is so strong that, as you said, we don't necessarily need answers to all of that. And I think it's wise of Ira Levin to allow those things to allow those questions to hang a little bit. I agree. I completely agree. So a little side note here, you were, you know, expressing relief at the lack of all the sequels and prequels and you know thank goodness it's a one and done i know we have one little thing to talk about later but are you aware of the upcoming apartment 6d no so i mean i know that they did the the story with um zoe saldana right Mm -hmm. but what i like about that is they didn't really deviate from the actual story itself what are they doing? What are they going to wreck in this franchise? Oh, Anya, I'm so sorry to be the bearer of bad news. So about a year ago, I heard Hyderberg actually, I think, sent me this news story on Bloody Disgusting. There is, a, at the time it was in production, I imagine it's post-production now, but I believe it's called Apartment 60 or 6B, whatever the apartment number is that the, the Woodhouses have. And I believe it's a prequel. <laughs> Of their, it's either a prequel or a sequel, but I think it's a prequel. I haven't 
I don't believe many details were released. Um, but if you look it up on IMDb, there are characters named Woodhouse in it. And uh, it's. But they didn't live there before that. I know. Maybe I'm wrong about it being a prequel, but it's it's something oh. related. Maybe. So they're doing something with it. And I just can't. I mean, I'll watch it. Well, we have to watch it. I mean, obviously, like I can't just go, but I I can't imagine a universe in which that in which that'll be good. I'm so, I should have sent that to you ahead of times, and I should have reviewed that ahead of time, so I was more knowledgeable. But the, there's something coming that's Rosemary. It's, I, I'm I'm pretty sure it's called Apartment Sixty, but yep, it's it's in the Rosemary's Rosemary's Baby has a universe now. <laughs> it's part of the universe. Oh my god! So no more universes, people. Oh. Sorry to be the one to tell you that. Um, I'll well, find a link. After. You know what? I'm glad that I heard it from you. It softened <laughs> the blow. <laughs> um. So what? What I liked a turning point moment for me. Um. And I I, I wanted to ask your opinion of that part of it. So Rosemary is in pain for what? Like eight months of her pregnancy something like that and the night where she ends up having her friends talk to her and they have convinced her you know you shouldn't be in pain like this and she finally stands up to him for the first time and the pain stops do you think that was coincidental <clears throat> short answer no the that's another one of those sort of mystifying moments, isn't it? And I've never felt like I had a total grasp on that moment, but the interpretation I've sort of stuck with over the years is that Minnie and Roman can hear her screaming at him through the wall of the apartment. And they're like, oh shit, she's about to blow this for us like she's going to go to another doctor and the jig is going to be up and so i think they do some kind of like magical hoodoo and somehow take it away but then that leaves another sort of mystery which is like if they're able to just take it away and everything's still fine why did it need to be there in the first place like why was it so painful in the first place why didn't they take that pain away in the first place like i thought about that just, actually mm-hmm what I what I think, and it's interesting that you say that that they might have the capability of doing that. That didn't even occur to me. Oh, um, at all, <laughs> because I mean, I know that they're part of an occult, but I, I guess I didn't actually really think about a lot that they did in between the main ceremony and then until the baby was there. But um, what I what I was thinking about with the pain is her body would be in it's probably trying to reject this you know demon baby and but the demon baby because of all of the stuff she's being given by Minnie I think it's making everything stay and so her body is rejecting it in every sense of of how it would be like she is literally creating an alien in her body and it's probably in constant pain because it can't feed it it can't nourish it it doesn't know even how to grow the son of satan and so they're constantly giving her stuff to encourage 
um, the growth itself happening, which is going against her nature. And so I assumed that's probably why she's in pain every second of every day. You know, you just totally blew my mind with that. (laughs) (laughs) I've been watching this movie for 25 years and I never thought of it that way, but that is brilliant. That's a really, really intriguing interpretation. It took me about that. It took me a while to kind of get there because I, I didn't I didn't used to kind of think about that, but actually maybe around the same time I started having children and started becoming a little bit more aware of what our bodies actually do when you grow a fetus. Um, and then I started, I would think about this every time. Why are they constantly, why does she have to have tannis root there? Why are they giving her pills every day? Why is she having to have certain yogurts and certain, you know, um, uh, like they, she comes and gives her a smoothie every morning, right? She's constantly forcing things in her body while but, her body is rejecting it. <laughs> Sorry, I missed that. You cut out. Oh, I said, which, by the way, sounds disgusting. Like yeah. the egg, herbs and blech, disgusting. Um, yeah, so I always just kind of assumed those herbs and things were like to help the baby grow, but I never thought of it as like a way of, coaxing the body to accept this baby when it would naturally want to reject it but that is really fascinating that's kind of a delicious thought (laughs) i'm gonna be thinking about that a lot damn 25 years of this movie and i've never thought about that Woohoo! it's good we're having this conversation then yeah 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 but the interesting thing so this was um this was a disconnect for me which i didn't really understand so they were very against her going to see Dr. Hill, but then she sees him anyway, and he has them showing up. So to me, when she showed up there, it I, I made a note of this too. There's either two reasons why he connected with, you know, the bad doctor. Um, either he's part of the cult and he knows what's going on. Or it's some sort of oath that doctors have that if your patient comes to me, I go to you. And either way, then why was there this insane fear of her going to see him from the get-go? I've never, never once have I thought that he was part of the cult. Um, I've always thought he was just like a regular guy. And I've always thought that so let me just say, Dr. Hill is one of the biggest disappointments in, <laughs> in movie history. Um, you put so much hope into him, right? Like, if you're watching this movie for the first time, you're putting so much hope in him to save our our main character. And then he just, like, lets her down with a tremendous thump. Um, I've always interpreted it as, A, I have a patient who's pregnant and she's clearly hysterical. I think he interprets her behavior, even though she's pretty calm, like she's a little agitated, but she's absolutely not hysterical or raving. But I think the things that she is saying are so bizarre that him, it sounds like hysteria. And to be fair, I think if any of us were like, you know, just interacting with a person in our daily lives and they were saying this, I think at the very least, it would seem a little strange and you might be a little like concerned for this person. But 
Um, I think he interprets it as hysteria. And I think his standard of medical care is like, this woman needs to be taken care of. And I think that's combined with like, oh, this is your patient. You need to come get her. And also that kind of paternalistic dynamic in, you know, a lot of marriages at that time, I think it's like, oh, you need to come get your wife. She's out of control. So I think, I think it's both, but I, I've never thought he was part of the cult. Do you, have you? I mean, not really, but then it got me thinking if, if he was a good I mean, I don't know. It's a different time, right? So if this was a current day, if they did this now, then yes, they're part of the cult. There would be no question about it. Um, so I get, yeah, I, I don't think so. But then I kind of thought, well, maybe, maybe this was actually a real twist. Maybe he was. Well, I think you were right to question before. Like if he were part of the cult, why would they be so afraid of her going to see him? And so I just, I, I don't think that there's anything there, really. Because if he were, then there would be no reason not to. Because they're so firm from the get-go, uh, Roman and, and Minnie. Oh, you're not going to go see some nobody doctor that nobody ever heard of. You're going to have the best. And we're close personal friends with him. Um, I think there's like a very singular desire to have Saperstein take care of her and I think to them Dr. Hill really is a nobody yeah okay so then it's probably just the doctor oath and like you said this is your wife you take care of her this is your doctor I mean even though to us we're watching her and she isn't overreacting and she is legitimately feeling these things and any woman especially being that pregnant you know that you've got hormones and any doctor who has ever delivered a child would know this that era he's probably going irrational woman i can't handle this you take her mm -hmm. well i mean for centuries though i mean hasn't that been the the way to dismiss women is like oh she's hysterical she's hormonal she must be on her period she, it's just the she's overly emotional it's just like so many ways to dismiss women who have real problems or complaints or fears um so to me like the, the like the the spawn of satan storyline here is really maybe this is what makes the movie so resonant for me and what's the reason it's like stuck with me for so many years and become my favorite so like the the spawn of satan stuff is really almost like incidental this movie is really about textbook gaslighting like oh, yeah. that is the horror. that is the horror of this movie is everyone being against you you know the truth and nobody will believe you and everybody's trying to convince you that the sky is not blue i mean and, and being deceived and tricked and being told that you're crazy i mean that is just ugh, i mean it's just it's it's the worst i mean it's just so hard to, it's so hard to watch um and so i think that's like what this movie is really about and that like being impregnated by satan it's like that's just the situation it's true it's true but you're you're absolutely right you hit the nail on the head how is Ira Levin such a feminist? I mean, he's just like, I love me some Ira. He, no he kidding. Really, he was speaking for us, man, and the Stepford Wives, too. 
You know, I've never read it. <gasps> I read that last summer. It's one of the scariest books I've ever read. Awesome. And I've, seen, I've seen the movie a hundred times, but I read the book and I was like, I mean, my eyes were bugging out like as I was reading the page. I mean, I texted John and Heidelberg actually while I was kind of reading the climactic scene. And I was like, in all caps, I was like, this book is so scary. <laughs> it was, uh, you've got to read it. You could read it in like a day. It's so short. Perfect. I'm on it. But yeah, Ira Levin, he was, he was in, he had his finger on the pulse of women in the 60s and 70s, I would say. Well, and the fact that women of today can watch this movie and resonate with her fear, you know, like I don't watch Night of the Living Dead and understand and feel what Barbara is feeling, but yes. Rosemary's Baby, I'm like, girl, if I was you, I know what you're feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I think in a way that's good. It's a testament to like the quality of the story and the quality of the filmmaking, the quality of the writing. But at the same time, I find it also sad. Oh, <laughs> I wrote that down too. I know. Even decades later, we can still even relate to that in any way. Um, you know, that there's still so much residue of some of these dynamics between men and women that we've been talking about. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's the thing that's really hard for me to swallow is it, it has needed men to stand up for that and to make it so obvious. And it's like men need to tell other men not to do these things. So like, really, really, you can't just not do the things like, <laughs> come on. I mean, you would think some of these things would be self-evident that you should not do them. But <laughs> I mean, I agree with you, but we live in a weird fucking world. Sure do. <laughs> sure do. <laughs> do you have any other thoughts on the film that you wanted to talk about? Well, that's a dangerous question. As <laughs> <laughs> fair thing before, I mean, it's just I'm sure you and I could talk, you know, for hours and hours about this. You mentioned earlier about the sort of clues that get dropped throughout the movie about what's going on um, that you don't necessarily know that you don't necessarily notice the first time you watch it. Now I can't specifically remember the first time that I saw this movie. So it's one of those things that's so familiar that like I've kind of lost sight of the like surprises in it. You know what I mean? Like they don't, they're not surprises anymore by a long shot. But in watching it with a critical eye to prepare for this episode, I just wanted to comment for a moment on the absolute, the absolute brilliance of the hint dropping throughout the story, which is not evident the first time you watch it. Um, for example, the secretary that's been moved when Rosemary and Guy are touring the apartment for the first time and the guy's showing them around. And then he's like, oh, that's funny. This secretary has been moved there's a closet behind there i'm sure and then they move it and they open the door and there's nothing there and it seems very mysterious but then you don't really think about it again until the end of the movie when she goes through that closet into the adjoining apartment um when guy and rosemary go over to the castavet's apartment for the first time and neither of them really wants to do it but they're trying to humor the old couple da 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 and then 
again, you don't notice this the first time, but upon repeat watches, Minnie is taking fucking forever with the dishes, which is giving the men a chance to talk. And you realize in later viewings, Roman is working on Guy. And you see that cigarette smoke wafting from, you don't see them, but you see their cigarette smoke. Um, when there's a, there's so many moments after she's already pregnant and Guy disappears and he, ha- he has like uh, excuses for everything. Like, oh, I'm going to run out and buy a paper or I'm going to go get an ice cream. You know, and he comes up with these little excuses. But, you know, you realize later that he's going to talk to Minnie and Rome. Something has arisen, you know, um, or, oh, when Hutch comes over and he sees how terrible Rosemary looks and he meets uh, Roman and Guy suddenly comes rushing home. You know that they called him and he mm-hmm. comes and he's he's still in his makeup like he would never do that. Um, but you know that he's been called to come put a stop to this probing by Hutch. I mean, there's just so many of those little things that it's like, oh, there's so much secrecy and there's so much conspiracy going on here. Um, and it, it all seems totally innocuous and like throwaway forgettable moments the first time you watch it. Or at least I, I assume that, you know, I didn't notice those things the first time because why would you? Um, but it's those moments that, you know, those of us who love this movie and have watched a hundred times are like, you're not seeing it, girl. You're not seeing it. (laughs) I agree with you. The Easter eggs, like one of my favorite ones is, um, when they go over there that, that first night and she notices that all of the pictures have been taken down. And then as she's walking through there at the very end, you see that she walks by one of them and recalls it from the night they brought her in there down to Satan. And I love that in that quick moment, you have this flash and you're like, oh my God, that's where that weird, you thought it was a dream, but no, no, it's from this painting that's in their place. Mm -hmm. And I think they were really brilliant in the way that their reveals were too, because their reveals, um, I find this a lot can happen with, say, like an M. Night movie or something where there's a massive twist in it. It removes you from what's currently going on because then instantly you're sitting there thinking back to everything. But this movie, it's so fast and you recall it so vividly that you aren't taken out of what is currently happening. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. It's just that brilliant it's brilliant writing it is well i think it's also another brilliant choice um and this goes back to ira levin this wasn't a a polanski decision but the choice for guy to be an actor i think is so so important because he has to be able to deceive her um like she is his most important audience uh like this this is the perform this is like the biggest performance of his career basically like if he's going to pull this off he has to absolutely utterly 100% convince her that everything's okay everything's normal and he has to find reasons to keep her going to Saperstein and not Hill and he has to find reasons to oh we got to go tell Roman and Minnie and oh don't listen to your friends I mean he's he's got to he's got to deceive her on so many levels and I and so I think that that is why it's so important that he's an actor I agree. And I, 
it's funny that you say that because I had a couple moments where it wouldn't have worked if he wasn't an actor because there there needed to be ego involved in this man. And an actor typically, especially at that era, unfortunately, had egos. But there had to be something that would sway this person to take this deal. And this would be he found fame. And yeah. I, I was just going to say the, the the hilarious thing is when you when you have watched it and you go back and you're watching it, you know, after your first time, you realize you're actually a shitty actor. This is really <laughs> obvious what you're doing. And like, like the red flags. Oh, my God. And but you're right that, that it was perfect. It was perfectly written. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I completely agree with you. He's not that good. Like he <laughs> like overly aggressive when there's no need to be aggressive. And he's like super defensive when there shouldn't be a reason for him to be defensive. And he just doesn't come off as believable. But so I think that again, relies on her character being so trusting. And that's what makes it so sad. It's like she is so trusting and she is being completely taken advantage of. And that's what infuriates me about the line after she's given birth and they tell her that it died. Uh, and, and then Guy says, oh God, I, I can't even like speak this out loud because it makes me so angry. He's like, they promised me that you wouldn't be hurt and you haven't been. Not really. I mean, that line just absolutely flabbergasts me. Like, there's like smoke coming out of my ears right now just thinking about it um because of course she's been hurt he has destroyed and taken advantage of everything about her that's good he has like completely violated every ounce of trust that she's put in the person that she should be able to trust more than anyone i mean it's just um it's unspeakable is what it is yes it is completely unspeakable you know what just occurred to me as you were saying all of this? One thought, um, a, a very minor thought that I had earlier, um, and I think you just answered it. I wondered why, how, how, how has nobody else gotten pregnant? How is this the first situation? And it, it, that is never touched upon and it's glossed over. But I think they were waiting for the perfect marriage of people and 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 they needed to have a certain personality in him and they needed to have a certain personality in rosemary and i think they noticed as soon as they got in there that this is the couple that is gonna birth you know mm-hmm. a- adrian or andrew or whatever yeah well and it's it's interesting that you say that because there's a character that we haven't touched on yet and that's the character of terry and Terry, of course, was intended to be like the vessel before Rosemary, but obviously that didn't work out. Um, the The Boys on Straight Chilling podcast covered this movie um, about two and a half years ago. Actually, it was I, like I requested it of them and they covered it like right before my third child was born. I was like, I got to hear you guys cover this while I'm still pregnant. And I think two of the three of them had never seen it before, which absolutely shocked me. But I know. Um, but they had this big debate about Terry. Like, why did Terry kill herself? And to me, it's always seemed completely obvious. Or did Terry kill herself or did they kill her? I think was the the question they were debating on the show. And to me, 
I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this because it's always seemed very obvious to me. But I've always seen it as she was in, she was chosen to be the vessel, you know, before Rosemary was. They made the mistake of telling her about the plan and she killed herself because it's so horrifying. Oh. What okay. are your um, so I wasn't 100% sure sort of what their intention with her was. They had her wearing tennis, but the Dr. Saperstein also smelled of tennis. So tennis to me represented the cult. It doesn't actually represent specifically, um, a vessel. Right. And I think they recruited her to be part of the cult. I don't actually think that she was going to be the vessel. And she started getting, there's a scene at the beginning. I wrote it down actually, um, where they're in yeah, in the basement and it sounds like a light bulb shatters and Rosemary's like, you know, I don't like it down here, but she doesn't really get phased by it a lot. And she has befriended, rosemary and they needed somebody that was a little bit more vulnerable and i think she just didn't really seem as vulnerable and so i think as soon as rosemary's rosemary came into the picture they offed her they didn't require her anymore i don't think she killed herself <sighs> because i think if she had killed herself there would have been if she if she knew or or was in knowledge that she was going to be a vessel and they suddenly started taking an interest in another woman you think that there would have been a little bit more of a reaction instead of this person trying to befriend rosemary and i also wondered you know she's younger um and she could be a lure for rosemary to feel comfortable they planted her there as at least that's how I kind of interpreted as, you know, we're going to be your, your aunt and uncle, like we're going to take you in or your, your grandparents or whatever. And they got her comfortable and then didn't require her services anymore. Because I mean, I never thought about it the way that you're saying, but I don't know something about, it's just too coincidental the volume of times people died at their hand. I just don't see that one as being a suicide. The reason I take it that way, there's something very subtle that, that to me has been like the major clue. So I think I've got this timeline, right? She meets Rosemary meets Terry down in the basement. Right. And then I believe it's like that night or later that night, or the next day or something that Terry falls out the window and is found dead. And that's Rosemary and Guy's first meeting with um, Roman and Minnie. There's, there's a moment somewhere in there that Rosemary and Guy, oh, it's right after the suicide. That's what it is. Right after the suicide, Rosemary and Guy can hear Roman and Minnie talking through the wall, or maybe it's just Rosemary. And it's very tough to hear, but you can hear Minnie saying, I told you she wasn't going to be open-minded to it. I told you we shouldn't have told her the truth. Oh. 
So to me, that's always been the big clue. And she was wearing the necklace just like Rosemary had. And Terry was also very isolated with really no friends or family in the world because the more connected the vessel is, the more likely somebody in their life is going to tell them that something is wrong. And so I always thought like, she's basically like kind of a throwaway person to them. And she's Italian, so she's probably Catholic. And if you remember in Rosemary's dream, one of the characters in the dream is like, sorry, miss, Catholics only, which I think is like an echo of what she's hearing in real life that like, oh, only Catholics. And so I think, you know, we maybe are to understand that being Italian, she's probably also Catholic. So I think she was like their first attempt, but they goofed up and told her what their intention was. And she was like, fuck. (laughs) I guess that that my question then is why did she kill herself instead of just leave? I I don't know. I don't know if it was just like an overblown reaction of like absolute horror or the fact that she really is isolated. Like these are the people who have saved Mm -hmm. her from the streets and she's like a drug addict and she has nowhere else to turn. And now like the only support system that she has is just like fallen out from underneath her with like these evil intentions. So yeah, I mean, they, they could have also offed her after they told her if she had a, well, not the reaction they thought. They could have, but I think that, I think that they seem, or at least Minnie seems genuinely like dismayed. She's like, I told you we shouldn't have done it. I told you we shouldn't have told her. Oh, I have to go back and listen. (laughs) Expect that to happen. Interesting. That's a very interesting thing. And I like hearing that they also had a dis- like an argument about it. Yeah. And so that was another thing where I was like screaming at the radio. I was like, guys, Minnie said they shouldn't have told her. I completely <laughs> missed that. You know, I do recall the scene and I do recall that you can hear them talking. But what's funny, and this again, if if that if that's the whole story, then this is the brilliance of of the way that it's written. You're so focused on the disagreement that Guy and Rosemary are having, and as a woman, especially, you're watching this feeling just just anger about everything he says to her, the way he talks to her. It's condescending. It's rude. It's inconsiderate, and and so anytime he's talking, I'm just sitting there going, you know, and and. Wow. Wow. I'm I'm so going back to watch. I have to I have to know. <laughs> and so so that's something I really love about this movie is there's so many things that are subtle and easy to miss. Like they don't hit you over the head with some of these things. Um like her dream sequences, there are clues in her dream sequence. You know, the um even before, you know, the actual rape. Um but like where she's getting on the boat and this and that. There's a lot of little clues hidden in her dreams where like what she's seeing in her dream mind eye is invent you know is like an invention of her mind but what she's hearing is real life and it's just like drifting you know how that happens sometimes like Mm -hmm. your environment but it gets incorporated into your dreams so there's like a lot of subtleties there but like you can take some of that audio for like face value and you can hear when you hear Minnie and Roman through the wall if you're not listening carefully it just sounds like squabbling and it it's muffled so it's not clear like imagine how different that moment would be if you could hear roman and minnie arguing like in the next room and you could hear that comment clearly like i told you she wouldn't be so but it's like it's i don't know it's like a weird kind of magic that it um it's so subtle and it's 
still being discovered, you know, even after many watches. So, yeah, it's funny wow. how you and I surprised each other with different interpretations. I know. I love it. I love hearing new things like that. I am absolutely going back and watching it again this week because I need to hear that. That will that changes things. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, so you had said like, oh, I, it's it's curious that nobody's gotten pregnant before. So I think so I think there's also a timing issue, because if you remember, they tell her that the due date is June 6th of 1966. So of course there's that like six 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 thing. So I think that like they're on like a time crunch, like <laughs> the Antichrist has to be. So it wouldn't have made sense for them to do this like the previous year. I think it's like now is the time when we must have a child conceived so that. He could be born on whatever this like prophecy date or whatever. So, um, I mean, if you could even take it one higher and say, you know, she was destined to get impregnated by him, by them arriving at the same time they unveiled this plan to this woman who killed herself. Woo hoo! <laughs> yeah, that's a bit more upsetting. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But just all in all, like, I just I think it's such a scary movie. I think it's so exceptionally well crafted. Um, I mean, it like infuriates me, but it's supposed to, like, I, I don't really have any serious criticisms of the, the movie itself or the, the craft of the movie. Do you? No. To, in, in my eye, this is one of the most perfect horror movies I've ever seen. Yeah, I agree. Every, everything about it just really hits for me. Um, you had mentioned like the cityscape and how beautiful that is and how, um, you know, seeing it in the movie, I would like take it even to a little more micro level. I mentioned earlier about like the two adjoining apart or not. Well, they are adjoining, but also adjacent apartments um, being kind of like almost a self-contained little dungeon bubble, even though she doesn't know it. I have to say this might be weird, but like um, I actually love Roman and Minnie's apartment. <laughs> I do too. I love dark woods and the antiques. And it looks like there's probably a bunch of weird stuff in there. And, um, I actually like it. I like Rosemary and Guy's apartment better before she paints it white and stuff. Like, yeah, it looks very bright and pleasing and all that. But I like the kind of like dark and kind of a uh, more somber atmosphere. <laughs> like, I would want to live in the haunted apartment. Um, I agree. But I think it's such a great atmosphere, and it creates such a good contrast. Like the just the that work that they did. Like how bright and light and cheerful and pleasant and innocent. Rosemary makes their home but then when she creeps through the closet and is in this other realm that's so dark and sinister um it's so effective it's like it's just like a place I like being in this movie I like kind of uh inhabiting that space so yeah just I think everything about it is, is perfect the straight chilling boys didn't like the uh the scene at the end where she walks into the room and sees the black cradle and there's like some guy taking photos and it seems very silly um, that's never bothered me. I, I was surprised that they, I felt like that was a nitpick. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of put myself into the shoes of, if I was a Satanist and I had the son of Satan here, I would be doing exactly the same thing. I would want to be rejoicing and partying and taking pictures. I would be in disbelief. I would feel protective. I would be, want to be surrounded by my coven members. I don't, 
I really personally don't see that they would be doing anything else because at the same token, this is still a child, tiny little demon. So it needs to grow and be fed and needs to be rocked and probably needs to be slept every now and then. I guess it's half demon, half human. So I thought it was a beautiful ending. I loved it. I loved everything about it. I thought so too. And I think it's, it's a difficult, but I think satisfying ending when she sort of acquiesces to still mother this child, despite this unfathomable betrayal and like absolute cosmic horror of what's been done to her and what this child really is, that she still, but in a way that's horrifying too, because it seems to communicate that like the maternal drive is stronger than anything else. You know, it's funny that you say that. I was just going to say my and my um opinion of that changed after i had children before i had kids i remember going what are you doing walk away uh-huh. and now i've had kids and i'm like oh i get it that's your child like i would do the same thing in a no heartbeat matter, no matter what it is <laughs> yeah yeah but it's no i'd have a little lamb baby too like yeah it's 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 a hard ending but and it's hard for us to see that for her you know I'm glad, though, that it wasn't a happy ending. It needed, this story would not have worked if the ending actually had the child die or um, if he came out and he wasn't really half demon or if he died, like, you know, it it needed, that ending needed to happen because otherwise then all of that, so to speak, was for nothing. And at least here that it's actually for something. Yeah. Or even if she, how would you have felt about it if she had walked away? I mean, I think, I think anybody watching would understand and you would be like, okay, I get that. But it's the emotion behind her needing to stay that made it as powerful as it was. Mm -hmm. And this maybe is going to sound really really anti-men and it's not meant to but you and I both are mothers and have birthed three children and we have that similar feel to it whereas the straight chilling guys are three men who haven't you know and and they didn't feel that same connection Mm -hmm. so (laughs) I think I personally think that that was a beautiful wrapped up ending as a representation of a feminist book it that's how a feminist book would have ended with this is so to speak your destiny you wanted to have a child you 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 gave birth to this child Mm -hmm. and I, i also think that that choice you know incomprehensible as it might be to some is very consistent with the character that has been shown to us in rosemary um she is a very very loving devoted person and she has it has been absolutely um of utmost importance to her to have this child and to care for this child and to have a healthy child she wants to do everything right she's excited um she's thinking of names she's painting the nursery and da 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 and so it's like i think it would be a betrayal of the character that we've been shown up to that point for her to turn on that baby yeah, it wouldn't have made sense. I think it's right for her character. I agree. And it would have also been a 
like a bravo moment to her and there wasn't any up until this point so i i just don't think it would have fit having a different ending mm -hmm. yeah I, I think it's a satisfying ending i think it's the one that's right i agree with you um no. oh, I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna quickly give you some film trivia yeah and you probably know all of these but maybe not i don't know maybe maybe not um and this first trivia we'll get into polanski a little bit more later but polanski and the studio clashed he fell behind shooting and they were not happy with him mm interesting and so Polanski apparently clashed with a lot of people because he also clashed with John Cassavetes so Cassavetes he lunged to he wanted to improvise on set and let the moment carry him through the scenes which that's how I am on set too but Polanski he was known for precision and he was annoyed if an actor even lifted a glass mere inches from where he imagined it to be Mm -hmm. so finding these sort of things out kind of gets you into the headspace of Polanski and kind of mm -hmm. answers mm -hmm. a lot of questions about him mm -hmm. uh the raw liver that Mia Farrow ate was real and Ugh. she is a strict vegetarian that is commitment girl <laughs> jinx <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, that's I that grosses me out to think about. I mean, I eat meat, but eating raw liver, gross. Yeah. Yeah, really gross. <laughs> uh the scene where Mia Farrell walked into traffic, that was real. So they so yeah, I guess you saw that one too. You know this one? Heard that one before. Yeah. They no streets were closed. There was no set, there was no stunt drivers. Polanski told her, ah, nobody will hit a pregnant woman. <laughs> and I also read that he filmed that himself because the um the cinematographer wouldn't do it. Yeah. So he's like, okay, I'll do it. So I mean, that's some commitment too. You know, gotta give him credit. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this was an interesting fact I didn't know at the time in the detail, but um, so Mia Farrow was married to Frank Sinatra at the time of shooting. And he read the script and he told her, I can't see you in it. She was supposed to be in one of his films called The Detective, but because of um, the shooting delays, there was a scheduling conflict. So Sinatra forced her to choose between the films. And after she chose Rosemary's Baby, he sent his lawyer to deliver her with divorce papers on set. She had to sign them in a blur of tears, but continued shooting. This apparently created such tension on set with the studio executives that the two not only didn't speak for years, but the producer, oh, um, sorry, with one of the studio heads who was friends with Frank Sinatra, him doing that created such tension on set that he didn't, they didn't speak for years, but the producer would go so far as to call restaurants ahead of time to ask if Sinatra was dining there so that he wouldn't go. Damn. Dude, I, I didn't realize that, that that he gave Mia that kind of ultimatum. Like, that's a bad bitch. Right? And then to serve her divorce papers while she's filming a movie? But she signs them anyway. Like, okay, I'm still going to do my movie. Like, she didn't uh, back down. Awesome. I know. I love Mia Farrow. 
Bad bitch. Bad bitch, yeah. Uh, so apparently the crew thought everything... Oh, sorry. Sorry, I was going to say, are we sure his name isn't Guy Sinatra? <laughs> Maybe that's so who they were really writing him after. Sounds like some Guy Woodhouse energy there. Maybe that's how she played that role so well. Maybe so. That's odd. Poor Mia. Uh, I know. I know. Um, the crew thought the whole movie was uh, cursed. So a producer got gallstones after production so severe that he required surgery. The composer suffered an accidental fall that led to a coma that led to death. And then Polanski's wife was Sharon Tate, who we all know what happened there. Yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is kind of always on that list of cursed films, isn't it? I mean, I still think The Exorcist is the weirdest. But um, this one, I mean, yeah, those are some strange coincidences to happen right after you're filming something that has questionable energy. Mm. And also, the, there was something with the actress who played Terry. She ended up, like, killing her husband or something. Or shooting him. Oh, my him, God. Maybe, maybe he didn't die. Maybe she, I think maybe she shot him and they stayed married. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. But, yeah, she, like, shot her husband. <laughs> something really crazy. For, for those who, who don't know, I'm sitting here just wide-mouthed right now. I can't. What? Yeah, I'll have to, I, again, I, I don't remember the details exactly, but I'm pretty sure she shot her husband, and then I, I think maybe they stayed married. Maybe he died. I don't think crazy happened. She was crazy. So, How do you stay married to somebody who shoots you? I might be wrong about that part, but I'm pretty sure she shot her husband in some capacity. That should be a deal breaker, don't you think? I can't. So, but, you know, love is strange. <laughs> um. Okay, so my last fun fact is going to lead us in into this quick hilarious moment there was a sequel it is called look what's happened to rosemary's baby anya i love you but there's a part of me that is like why did you bring this into my life so <laughs> <laughs> you told me but i i watched it i sure did it's a thing it <laughs> It is. It's. It is. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so let me say this about it. I watched it about six weeks ago, when because we were originally planning on an earlier uh, recording date for this episode. But uh, I watched it about six weeks ago, and I remember texting. I think John and Hyderberg, and maybe the Spoils of Horror guys. I don't know if you ever listened to them, but I texted them, and I was like, guys. I'm watching this movie and it's like it's so bad that it's making me like uncomfortable like I'm like I'm like not comfortable watching this movie because not just because it's like offensive or anything it's just so bad like how is this a movie it's like, unwatchable this... it's horrible so, <laughs> <laughs> so for anybody <laughs> I'm just gonna pull up what they uh have what they have said about this movie for anybody listening don't watch it first of all <laughs> but now if you're curious so it was originally made as a tv movie that you can watch for free on youtube 
And the premise is that having been adopted by the madam of a southwestern brothel, a now adult Adrian, also known as Andrew, must cope with the fact that he's Satan's kid and not living up to his expectations. I mean, I don't even know where to begin with this movie and like why it's so awful. I mean, in broad strokes, it carries absolutely nothing over that is good from the first movie from story to acting to tone to subtlety i mean any there's a lot of disco dancing in this movie so that's 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 there um well and the funny thing is there's actually some good cast members in this movie like and i and i don't like why their talents were wasted but patty duke is in this movie like oscar winner patty duke um Stephen McHattie who I think is actually a great actor um well Minion the, and the Castavets were in it not Roman yeah that was so, him no it wasn't um it was Ray Milland oh they in, look very similar yeah they do but in Rosemary's Baby it was um Sydney Blackmer so it's a different actor but the, but uh Ruth Gordon is in it she's the only cast member to carry over um Tina Louise, who is Ginger from Gilligan's Island. I mean, that's not like a great acting performance, but she was also Charmaine in um, Stepford Wives. She's in it. Um, Donna Mills is in it. I mean, there's like not terrible cast members. And yet, <laughs> this this happened. <laughs> this has got to be in our top five worst movies of all time. Oh, yeah, I would agree. Nothing about it makes sense. Like, Nothing. So Andrew as an child is, so first of all, what on earth happened during Andrew's first eight years of life? And then she suddenly like, Rosemary's still there with him, but then she has to escape. And then she disappears from the movie and you never see her again. Like she, like he's taken away from her. She gets put on a bus and then he grows up and he's like 30 and you have no idea where she is. Like she just disappears. Well, yeah, and then he's suddenly getting involved with the, the weird cult member. Okay, first of all, people walking around saying, Hail Satan, that was overkill. It was all the time in the, like, oh, he's answering the phone. Hail Satan, hail Satan. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, and their spells that they cast are, like, not particularly menacing. It's like, you would expect them to at least be in Latin or something, but they're like, Adrian come to us adrian come to us i'm like well shit i could be a witch like real easy i just like say what i want and chant and light a candle damn thought you had to go through kind of training or something like study latin as a foreign language i don't know but i mean they're it's they're ridiculous they're ridiculous yes but the twist that the the nurse (sighs) biggest eye roll exactly the eye roll that you just gave is a hundred percent what I did during the end of this movie. The point. If the point is that he's not like evil enough to be the Antichrist, then what is the point of her having a child with him? Like, shouldn't she be having a child with the devil? <laughs> and not like this person who is not evil enough to be the Antichrist? That means their child is gonna be even more like diluted, like more watered down. What is the point? Maybe Satan was too busy. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> it was April. He was working on his taxes. <laughs> I mean, I just, it's like, so everything about it is so ridiculous. It is. It was wild that, that there was literally zero redeeming qualities about this film and for it to try to go off of such a strong movie, at least don't try to have a connection, be your own thing at least. So that's the thing is like, I wonder if it could have been okay or at least tolerable if it were not linked in any way to Rosemary's baby. If this were just like, oh, a woman has had a child within this like culty coven thing and now she's trying to escape and now the cult is after the the boy now that he's a grown-up. Like, separate it from that whole thing. I mean, I think it still would have been silly, but I mean, it it could have worked better, I think, if it had been its own thing. If the execution was done in a different way, then maybe. But they're trying to go for a 70s art house kind of film with elements of metal music and lighting that doesn't really work like i'm gonna stab him and put him up against a window with lighting behind him and he's dead and i (laughs) don't watch it folks don't do it i mean unless you're the kind of person who really enjoys watching bad movies like for pleasure then i i guess it's really bad it's really bad and even ruth gordon god so, like, the cast is so misused. Like, Ruth Gordon has nothing to do here. Her character is just, like, a little fly. I mean, she's totally inconsequential. Because there's nothing for her to do. In in Rosemary's Baby, she's, like, that female connection with Rosemary. She's, like, like they, they're able to make inroads with her because of Ruth Gordon. Because of Minnie. But here, there's no, like, female lead for her to, like, latch on to. There's nothing for her to do like the the deed is already done and now they're just trying to figure out like if adrian is evil enough that's like the whole goal of the movie like is adrian evil enough oh, and she has she has such an annoying voice too that she just sounds like she's in the background you know the whole time and it's no yeah so that's what yeah she's just like a little fly there's nothing for her and patty duke as much as, as i respect her as an actress I feel like it, this must have been a direction issue, but like she does not inhabit the character of Rosemary as we know her. She's just like pure hysteria all of the time. She's like out of 10 all the time. And if, something I did want to say about Rosemary um, in the real movie is that like she is kind of subservient to Guy and she is like the the powerless one in this like marriage dynamic with guy but she is level-headed and you know especially in the final act of the film when she's trying to put this puzzle together she's putting the pieces together she's making realizations and she's trying to get help like she actually is very collected and not hysterical um she's she's going to people that she thinks can help her and she's explaining the problem and um she's very resolute like she's not a shrinking violet she's very resolute when she tells guy of course before she knows that guy's in on it she's like well they're not going to get my baby we're going to move out of here we're not going to have anything else to do with them and that's final like she's very staunch um and in control 
But Patty Duke's portrayal of Rosemary is absolutely not that at all. It's just like, I mean, she's not in the movie that much. It's maybe the first like 20 to 30 minutes. But I mean, she's pretty much like at level 10 hysteria all of the time. And then she goes away on a bus and that's it. And that's it. It's just like that's not the Rosemary we know. Well, what that the point that you're making about her in the movie is I feel like when she starts realizing everything, it's almost like, okay, mama, mama bear is coming out and putting on mama bear pants now. And how are we going to get through this, figure this out? Yeah, absolutely. Because that is the most important thing to her as it should be. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a bad, it's a bad, it's a bad movie. (laughs) Yeah. But so out of five, what would you give the first one? (laughs) I mean, no thought necessary. Five out of five. One hundred percent. Okay. <laughs> I didn't expect anything different from you, but yeah, fine. And vice versa, I didn't expect anything different either from you. So then now we're gonna launch into potentially the trigger warning part. Um, the director, Roman Polanski, which you can't deny his creative genius. He directed this film and had a big hand and say in everything about this movie that you and I both love. So the question then remains, is Roman Polanski canceled? And by virtue then, if we decide he should be canceled, theoretically, his movie should be removed out of our top 10. I know that's the biggest question ever. Well, I think there's questions there. Well, actually, there's a lot of questions, but I think there's there's two big ones. There's a difference between is he canceled and should he be canceled? And I think one of those is kind of easy to answer. Um, the, the question, is he canceled currently? I think the answer is no. Um, I think he's still considered to be like very widely respected in Hollywood. And I think in the early 2000s, what was that film that he had that was like nominated for an Oscar? And uh, Oh, that's a good Some, question. Because he was he was in exile in Europe at that point. He has been for decades. He hasn't set foot in the United States for like 40 years, but he came uh, back. Did he? He did. Or no, well, they got him. I'll I'll I, they oh, they did they they I, ended up getting him, but no, sorry, not in the US. Okay. I think I'm not totally up to date on the most recent doings then, but um, was it like, Chinatown? The, no, it was in the early 2000s. I want to say the pianist. Is that right? No, he didn't do the pianist, did he? Did he? Um, hold on. Sorry, I'm googling. <laughs> what was he nominated for an Oscar for? Oh yeah, he did do the pianist. Yeah. So I think that was nominated for an Oscar, and there was like, I'm pretty sure it uh, won things. I think it did too, but he didn't come back for it to the United States because he was, you know, living in exile. He knew he'd be arrested immediately. Um, won three Oscars. Yeah, you're right. So. I think there was like kind of a, a like a celebratory laud- laudatory, you know, something or other dedicated to him during Oscar season at that time, like when he won and there was like the special thing. But of course, he didn't, you know, come to the ceremony. But so and so that has continued to go on. Now, I did read that he has a recent film that came out, I think, within the last year. And in the United States, you cannot get it legally anywhere like you can't stream it i think there are you know places like not 
totally above board places on the internet where you can find it and watch it, but there's no legal way to access it. So I think maybe Hollywood in the wake of like the Me Too movement is starting to like, maybe not necessarily change its opinion of Polanski, but change how it handles his new work. Hmm. His old work is all still accessible, but um, I think they're, you know, there are new thoughts when it comes to his new work. So, so I think, I, I think that the, the question is he canceled is currently like mostly no, but should he be canceled? That's, that's the hard one, isn't it? It is. And it's, it's tough to answer because I'll summarize the offenses. Um, I didn't know a lot about the offenses until I started reading it. So I wasn't sure. And I read everything and made these notes and I was like, well, yeah, he absolutely should be canceled. But then I was like, but this is one of my favorite movies. How can I love such a movie and want to watch it and support it and promote it and talk about it yet not acknowledge the director? That's, I mean, that's like listening to Marilyn Manson's music, but not supporting Marilyn Manson. It's a really tough thing to find that balance. Um, Yeah, it really is. So here is the quick summary of the Polanski things. In 1977, Roman Polanski was 43 years old and was arrested and charged with six offenses against a 13-year-old girl. Those offenses were unlawful sex, rape by use of drugs, perversion, sodomy, a lewd and lascivious act, and furnishing uncontrolled substances to a minor. He pled he pleaded not guilty and then he later accepted a plea bargain. He was placed on probation and then upon learning he was likely to be imprisoned and deported, he fled to London and then France hours before his sentencing. What started his meet with the young girl was Polanski asking her mom if he could photograph her for a French Vogue. So he's 43 and she's 13. The girl posed topless in a private shoot further to his request. The shoot took place at Jack Nicholson's home. Polanski described the event in an autobiography and insisted he didn't drug her and that she wasn't unresponsive. But in 1988, the girl sued him for those things and it was settled out of court in 1993 he ended up missing payments and currently apparently owes her at least five hundred thousand dollars some other alleged assaults that came forward later was that 1972 he raped a 15 year old several times in 1973 another 16-year-old he raped. In 1983, he forced himself on another actress who was 16. In 2009, he was found and arrested in Switzerland, but agreed to electronic monitoring and was released on bail for $4.5 million. And a year later, he stopped wearing the monitoring. So that that's, that's kind of summed up in an easy way to hear. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's, I mean, I think it's not really a matter for debate that like he has done heinous things. And I mean, as you said, in his autobiography, he pretty much caught to it. He's like, yeah, we had said he, he seemed to cause I, I read like an account, like a, an excerpt, um, from his book and he seemed like surprised that it was such a big deal. Like he seemed surprised that he was facing legal 
consequences for this encounter with the 13-year-old girl. Um, he really seemed to like treat her as though she were a woman. He was like, oh, she was responsive. She seemed to want it. Whereas she has gone on the record as saying, I did not want to do this. I said, no, like I was a child. I was uncomfortable with this whole thing. I didn't know how to get out of it. And, um, you know, I, I think like, there's no question that he has done absolutely heinous things. So then that, that, that right there is, is, are we able to separate the man from the director, from the film? How do you support one and not the other? Well, okay. Spoiler alert. My final answer on this is I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I, I think I was looking to you for an answer, Jacqueline, because I don't have one. I mean, I think it's a really, really complicated issue um, with a lot of different factors. And I think every question about cancellation and every situation is sort of different. So again, I don't, sorry, I don't have a final answer on this. Um, but some of the things that I take into consideration are as follows. Is my enjoyment of this person's work still financially supporting them is or contributing to them financially? So for instance, in the case of Michael Jackson, you know, he's been accused of, he was accused of terrible things. He's dead now. So like, if you buy a record for God, how old am I? I just said a record. <laughs> if you buy a Michael Jackson album or I mean, who buys albums anymore, but you know what I mean? If yeah. you buy or whatever, like it's not going to him because he's dead. So for some people that can be an ethical consideration. Like if you're not contributing financially to supporting this person, then it's okay to enjoy their work. On the other hand, some people might say like, well, one person does not make a film in a vacuum. Uh, that work was also created by dozens, if not hundreds of other people who, you know, are supported financially by consumption of that work. Um, or even if you are financially contributing to this person, like, is it in any way significant or do, are they getting like a three cent royalty from your specific streaming of that film? You know, so all that's a consideration. I, again, I don't know what the answer is. It does. I will admit it makes me feel better to enjoy something that I like. If I know that the person is not benefiting financially, it, it eases my conscience. Mm -hmm. Um, because I've always believed that, like, in a way, you, like, condone or reject things with the dollars that you spend, you know, um, even just symbolically. Like, does it make a big difference in a person's life whether they get, you know, your specific $20 or whatever it costs you to consume their work? Like, does it really make a difference to them or is it just, like, symbolic? But in some cases that can be like an easing of the conscience. So I don't know. Um, I mean, there are a lot more, but I'll, I'll pause and let you, let you talk on your podcast. No, I like you talking. <laughs> I think, I think the, the, the biggest part that I'm having the struggle with isn't so much the financial aspect of it because I mean, how many billionaires are billionaires and do just atrocious things currently. Right. Um, but I think where I'm struggling is 
my enjoyment for this incredible film outweighs my acknowledgement that this man has done these things. And that's where I feel a moral dilemma. How do <laughs> I how do I dig into this and then enjoy it as much as I do when that's looming over my mind? I, I just feel like I can't. And I am devastated by that because like we said earlier, this isn't nearly a flawless movie. Yeah. And you can't watch a basically a flawless movie and deny that the director is a big part of that. Yeah, it's tough. Um, and I think that kind of varies person by person. Mm -hmm. I, th I, I, and I, I'm hesitant to like judge anybody for, you know, I'm trying to word this in a way that reflects what I really mean. I'm not trying to say like some people would be aware of it, but don't care or un are unbothered by it. But some people who just, it doesn't like the awareness of the director's crimes maybe doesn't factor into their experience of that specific piece of art, you know, directly. Um, and I think there are probably, you know, I think there's probably like a, a, a spectrum of like people who can, like, they absolutely can't think of anything else. Like they, you know, they love Rosemary's Baby, but they can't watch it without thinking of Roman Polanski. And then people who are aware of his crimes, but love Rosemary's Baby or Chinatown or The Pianist or The Tenant or Repulsion or whatever. Um, and they're able to just compartmentalize that. And I, you know... I think I might be somewhere in the middle on that, but I, I don't want to judge. I don't want to judge anybody who's at a different place on the spectrum than I am. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also think a big part of it is like consideration of the victims and like, does your promotion or like putting out into the ether of like a particular piece of art, like, is that harming the victims? So like, I think some of that can have to do with recency. And again, I'm, I wanna make it clear. I'm not saying that like, oh, if it happened a long time ago, it doesn't matter. But I'm saying like, how present in, is, is a piece of art in the current like public conversation? Mm -hmm. And what are victims' feelings about that? And again, I think that's kind of like on a case by case basis. There might be people who are victims of a person's crimes who are like, every time this person is talked about or every time this person comes out with a new piece of art, it, it wounds me and it reopens. It like forces me to relive all my experiences. And there might be people out there who are like, you know, it happened such a long time ago. It doesn't factor in. I don't know exactly where Roman Polanski's victim slash victims fall on that. I do think that that original woman that you talked about who was 13 at the time the one that he was actually like arrested for um i do think i read something a few weeks ago where she was like you know i just I, I don't like this argument even being had it just like kind of i just want to move past it like i don't even want to discuss it anymore so i don't know for whatever that's worth but then you talked about all these other alleged victims i don't have any idea how they feel about it 
And so I think that kind of has to be taken into consideration. There were people like, you know, the Dahmer series um, that came out on Netflix last year. I read that like a lot of the families of the victims were upset by that series. Um, and I think that like the creator of that series tried hard to like take the families of the victims into consideration and like show the victims more and not just focus all on Dahmer. But it sounded like a lot of them were still very upset about it and felt very wounded that this was being like reopened for everybody to see in like a dramatized way. And so I think that kind of thing matters. I think it like, I think people need to listen to victims and how they feel about the artist's work and having it out in the public sphere. That's, that's a really interesting take. I mean, especially when it comes to the types of movies we watch, you know, sometimes it borderlines glamorizing this extreme violence. And the Dahmer is a perfect example of that. You know, it people started dressing up as him for Halloween. Like that is, you know, that was a hard one because the performance in that is so good. Evan Peters is so incredible he's an amazing actor amazing but it's really difficult and that i would almost put that in the same category as this this decision you know like how do you separate what the reality of that was versus what you're watching and i haven't answered that yet you know like right after i initially read all of these things that Polanski had done, my initial gut reaction was, I'm not going to be able to enjoy this movie. I can mm -hmm. enjoy the story and the book. But then I rewatched it. Now I don't know anymore. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I was hoping you had an answer <laughs> to tell me what to do. Well, I, I'm actually a little, a little relieved that you don't, because I was like, oh God, she's going to judge. She's going to be like, you immoral. <laughs> you know, like you must announce this with me, but, um, of course I should have known better, uh, knowing you, but I mean, um, anybody who looks at my content definitely has moments of, wow, what is she representing here right now? You know, so I'm not going to be the one to judge any of that stuff. Don't worry. Yeah. Well, and so to play a little bit of devil's advocate, I would just bring up a couple of points. One that like, I know this is like a cliched argument, but I do feel like there's a slippery slope to consider here. Like if you consider the crimes committed by Harvey Weinstein, right? Yep. How many like hundreds or maybe thousands of movies did he produce through Miramax over the decades? Like, does that mean that all of them are off limits? And I, like, listen, I'm aware that this is like a cliched argument because we've all heard it a million times before, but I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Like, I mean, I think if I think it is a slippery slope that if you consider everyone who has done something, you know, at the at the minimum distasteful or at the worst, like absolutely criminal. I mean, I feel like it, it severely limits the landscape of your artistic um, life or artistic experience. Um, well, where do you set that boundary, right? That, you know, that's the thing. Because, I mean, there are shades. I don't think it's fair to say, like, everyone who says everything, anything, like, bigoted or anybody who has even a whiff of something predatory or everyone who's even been accused of something without, you know, conviction or confirmation 
let's just be on the safe side and cancel it. Like, I don't, I think that's like not a nuanced enough view, but I also think it's not nuanced enough to just be like, well, you got to separate the art from the artist and that's it. Like, so I don't know. I almost feel like it should kind of be on a case by case basis. So, but then that also doesn't answer the question that you're asking, which is, should we cancel? <laughs> so I, I'm sure I'm hemming and hawing here. Can you tell I'm trying to stall and <laughs> You know um, what, you know, what I, I kind of feel like if you and I were in a position of willing to let this film that has meant so much to us for so long be overridden by what this man has done, it almost in one sense feels like we're giving him that control, right? by saying I'm not going to watch this anymore because I can't support you because of what you've done but this movie has meant mm -hmm. so much to me without having to do with you necessarily I feel mm -hmm. like if that was a hard and defined answer that yeah it's canceled easy done then great you mm -hmm. know we both would have jumped on that if this was a different movie that didn't mean so much to us it might be an easier decision but it sounds both of both you and I are in an agreement. This is not one that is going to necessarily be able to just be put down because of what we've learned. Mm -hmm. And I know that we both will feel guilt for that. But at the same time, I have a feeling that because of how important this movie is to both of us, we're there's a, a way that we're going to be able to make that exception and separate that here yeah i hate to admit it but i think um to an extent you're right i think it's so it comes back to something i said earlier which is like sometimes these things are like symbolic um you know when people boycott things or they try to cancel things i think sometimes it's symbolic because it's easy to do that with something that doesn't really matter to you so for example, I've never listened really to R. Kelly's music. And so it would be easy. It would be easy knowing, you know, some of the terrible things that he's done. It would be easy for me to be like, oh, well, I'm going to boycott R. Kelly. Well, I didn't listen to him in the first place. <laughs> so that's like, there's no stakes there, right? Like, I don't actually sacrifice anything by saying that. It's just symbolic. It's kind of like, I don't love this term, but to an extent, it is kind of like virtue signaling. Yeah. Um, and trying to like appear moral, but it's like, I feel like for, for people like you and me, when there's a piece of art, like you said, that's so meaningful to us, it's like, we really are faced with more of a, a moral conundrum. Um, Marilyn Manson. I'm not an R. Kelly fan, but I have been a Marilyn Manson fan. So Manson, that's harder. Manson has been, that was a hard one for me. I had to stop listening to his music and it's <laughs> gutted me. Marilyn Manson was what I listened to at every one of my shoots. And so, but again, if you, if you think of it as like a case by case basis, like he's still active now. He is still like, he lives in our society. He's making money from his art. And so it feels, it feels more immediate. Mm -hmm. If I, even now in the days of like streaming, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not buying a Marilyn Manson album like I used to, you know, 15 years ago. Um, but still like streaming numbers, I think, I mean, I don't know how it all works, but I think it probably contributes to like how much he gets paid in his deal with like Apple music or Spotify or whatever. And so I, you know, 
it's it feels more immediate for me to like contribute to that. I I agree with you, and that that's why it also feels a little easier to kind of push that one away, right? Yeah, and and it's music, and as much as music, you know, I. I, I don't know how important it is to you. It's very important for me, especially for my creating. Mm-hmm. But I almost feel like maybe this is the wrong way of wording it, but I I can't cancel everything about everybody. And yeah. so I'm trying to pick and choose what I will stand behind and support. And it's easier for me to not listen to Marilyn Manson and listen to other artists who are within that sort of similar wheelhouse But I have never, ever found a movie like Rosemary's Baby. I just, I haven't. I mean, Hereditary was real close. Yep. And that's in my top 10. And I'm sure it's probably in your top 10 too. (laughs) It's a near perfect film. So, you know, maybe in 20 years, Hereditary might replace Rosemary's Baby. But for the time being, I feel like it's one that is just going to kind of stick and I feel bad saying that, but I think it's the reality. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just come right out and say it. Like, I don't feel like I'm willing. I'm not willing to let go of Rosemary's baby because of Roman Polanski. Yep. And I'm, I'm sorry to say I do feel a moral conundrum about it. Well, I mean, that's Um, like I was saying, it almost gives him back. It gives him more power by saying what you've done dictates what I'm going to watch. And that feels really unfair. It really does. Well, maybe I'm trying to justify it. I love you, but I, I, I a little bit of rationalization. Um, but I'm also hyper aware that any argument against cancellation that I come up with is probably a biased form of like rationalization on my part too. So I, <laughs> you're, not, you're not rationalizing. <laughs> Um, I don't know. And we, there, there are different like philosophical schools of thought about the link between artist and, and art. Um, like around the turn of the 20th century, it was very in vogue, um, to consider art absolutely independently of the artist. Like the art stands alone, it speaks for itself and that is it. And, um, later in the 20th century it it even went a step further which is like you should consider the artist to be dead and the meaning of the art comes from you as the consumer of the art you are the one making meaning once you consume the art the artist is no longer involved in it it's your experience and therefore there is no abject meaning in the in the in the art itself there is there can be no intention behind it there can be nothing like the artist is dead and inconsequential the experience of art is all about you. And so I, that those are just some schools of thought. And then, you know, later on, it comes to a more complex link between the, the, the artist and the art. And I think that's what we're all as a society sort of struggling with right now, because it's, it's been an ongoing argument for a long time. And I think, I, I mean, I think if we're being honest, I don't think anybody in our society who's consuming art, which is everybody, I don't think anybody is like completely morally pure in their consumption. I think everybody is making choices on a case by case basis about what they're willing to like sacrifice and what they're not. Um, 
you know, I, I know people who have no problem with Roman Polanski. Like they know what he did and they don't like it, but they don't have any problem with his films. They're just like, well, I love them. I'm still going to watch them. But at the same time, like won't watch a Mel Gibson film, which I get. So like, again, I think we, I think it's, it's unique to everybody what we're willing to like, I think to an extent we're all overlooking something willfully, even if it's minor. But so I think Mm -hmm. we're all having, make those decisions i don't think there's anybody who's because i think anybody who's being completely like morally pure first of all is probably not consuming much of anything um and second of all is is maybe doing a little bit of grandstanding yeah you know like trying to deliberately communicate to others how morally pure they are i mean the fact that we're even having this conversation and having the moral conundrum in itself speaks volumes to our characters, right? And I think anybody that does pick and choose and they're able to give up something that they enjoy based on the re- the actions of somebody means you have a moral compass. And that's huge. We're not all psychopaths here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I question cool. myself a lot. Yeah, well, and so I like I'm I'm aware that my unwillingness to sacrifice Rosemary's baby is like intellectually dishonest. But by admitting that, it's very honest. Okay, then it's like morally dishonest. <laughs> <laughs> we'll and tell so you I- what. You I won't cancel you. You won't cancel me. Let's not cancel the film. Mm-hmm. And let's just agree that the story, the acting, the people who made the film, collectively, the art, it means more to us than the actions of one individual man. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. I agree with that. Because there was a moment, I hadn't watched it in a while. And when I was looking through everything, I was like, oh, could I let this one go? And then I watched it. I was like, no, I, I, I can't. I just can't. Yeah. I so, mean, if like a movie you like, fine. But like for, for both of us, it is our number one fave. And it's been a number one. That's the thing, you know, not just for five minutes, for like 30 years. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like for about 25 years, it's kind of like... For a long time, it kind of wavered back and forth. It kind of like alternated between first and second with The Shining. And of course, Stanley Kubrick has his own issues. <laughs> we don't need to get into that. But um, but I would say for the past 10 years, it's been Rosemary. Yeah. Like, without fail. Like, see ya. See ya, Shining. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, <Rosemary>. Jack. <laughs> Mia's doing it. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I hope that wasn't too anticlimactic for you, but like that I I just I I I don't have like a satisfying, like morally correct answer that like still allows us to <laughs> to love this movie. So I know. And that's but that's one of the reasons I wanted to have the conversation is being in the climate we're in today with like you said, the Me Too movements. Everybody is in this period of acknowledgement of 
kind of men. And this is such a representative movie of that too. Everything comes down to, unfortunately, mm-hmm. the, his- the history of that. And where do we as women stand? Where, where do we allow things to just be and actually take a stand for them? Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with you. Um, I think it's been like a reckoning for men, specifically in the entertainment industry, but also in all sectors of society, you know, um, including private sectors, you know, just people in their day-to-day lives. But I think it's like, um the the result of it is a growing sense of like accountability that you can't just do these things anymore and just get away with them now will people still do them and will people still get away with them yes but hopefully to a far lesser degree than throughout like the entire history of this country like <laughs> um hopefully these things will not just be like expected and accepted anymore like it was just it's been considered the norm all this time and it was just accepted now it's still going to happen but it's not it's not just like a given it's not the expectation it's not just going to be like taken lying down anymore and I think that's positive I agree and I also think when you really deep dive into things like this it really shows you the strength in men you know like if we're going to be talking about canceling roman let's talk about era he wrote this book as a man from a woman's perspective and he did her justice he did her like like boss stuff you know for the for women everywhere we can relate to this character and I don't feel that a man wrote this from a man's perspective. I feel like he did his research. He did his due diligence. He spoke well for us and for the time. And I think that deserves the recognition and congratulations for him. Completely agree. I think his writing is so like compassionate and uh, understanding of women. It's like, it's so considerate. It's like a real consideration of women as human beings and also with the Stepford Wives. I mean, those are like the two of the most feminist novels I can think of. Um, But it it takes a person who's willing to truly consider what life is like for another person who has a different experience from yourself. I mean, that's, I mean, I feel like that's a radical act for a man writing in the sixties and seventies. It's just a radical act at any time it's radical now yeah yeah so yeah all all kudos to him i mean that's outstanding outstanding writing out stories outstanding storytelling and outstanding representation i agree so yeah way to go ira (laughs) way to go ira and on that note thank you jacqueline for joining me and deep diving into our favorite horror movie ah that feels nice saying that i know (laughs) yeah thank you so much for having me on um this was a really unique episode that i'm so honored that you asked me to be a part of and included me on um i I think we had some important conversations um maybe not like definitive answers about everything but i think it's you know it's good to talk about these things um i wouldn't be surprised if each of us got a little crazy